What a tremendous blessing it is to be able to gather together this Sunday morning. The appreciation, the marvelous, wonderful way in which God has so lavishly upon us the many blessings of this past week. I realize with the difficulty, the inclement weather in many ways, and yet we at least enjoyed safety. We enjoyed the capability of bringing us to this first day of this week. For the next few moments this morning, I'd invite you to consider a lesson I've entitled, Unaccepted Offerings. And maybe you noticed in that text, I hope you'll keep Amos chapter 5 open on, on your lap perhaps, or at least accessible to you. And for the next few moments, we will be reminded of some tremendous truths from that ancient writer of the long ago. This opening slide is basically an introduction, and it really challenges us, I think, to give thought to what it means to be offered a gift. Have you ever been on the receiving end when maybe someone offered you a gift, but you didn't want it? Or if you turn that around, what if, in fact, that you offered someone else a gift and they refused it? How did you feel? Sometimes it makes us have questions. Why didn't they like the gift I offered? I only intended it to help. I intended it to, in fact, feel that which they needed, and yet they refused it. Sometimes it makes us feel defensive. Sometimes it makes us feel a bit guilty. Well, at this point, might we ask, the great God of heaven, of course, is masterful. He's awesome. And yet, are there ever occasions when He does not accept what is offered to Him? Well, today, you and I noticed in that text of Amos 5, and we're going to develop an extensive lesson based on that text this morning. Let's close this introductory slide by noting what we're about to study today is a subject of intense reflection, and it's a serious matter. And might you and I use it to make sure that our service to God is directed as it ought to be, and of course that our worship would have all the attributes that God would wish it to have. Let's use the first part of our lesson then to say something about the setting of this text. We would never be wise to take a passage and not at least appreciate a little bit about the setting in which it's found. Otherwise, we might well take that out of the context in which God wrote it. Well, it won't take us very long to reflect upon that setting, but I've tried to summarize some of the lessons. The book of Amos is an Old Testament book, and it is one of the latter books in that Old Testament. It was written about 760 years prior to the birth of Jesus. Therefore, you begin to appreciate it was written a long time ago. But that doesn't mean its messages are not those you and I can draw some useful lessons from. In fact, notice this setting. It would be well for you and me to notice that the particulars of this day and time were, it was a time of peace. It was a time of prosperity. Jeroboam II was on the throne of Israel at the time, and all of Israel's enemies were preoccupied fighting other battles, so they left Israel alone. And Israel had a prosperous time. They were enjoying a good economy. They were enjoying any number of other peaceful features. It was a very pleasant time. But the book of Amos, again, written at this time, you'll notice on the third point, the book of Amos was such that Amos made statements about doom and destruction. 
And the people quite often proverbially laughed at Amos. Amos, what are you talking about? It's peaceful, it's prosperous, we've got everything we need. And Amos said, I'm telling you, if you don't turn your heart to God and repent, He's going to destroy you. Well, needless to say, they didn't put a lot of stock in what Amos said. They thought he was an alarmist. They thought he was a pessimist. They thought he really didn't know what he was talking about. We've got it good, they thought. In less than 40 years, the Assyrian war machine brought its powerful army against them and destroyed them, just like Amos said that he would, just like God said that he would. Well, maybe in light of that, you'll notice that the book of Amos, as it describes some of the features, Amos was the one that was wise. He was the one that told them what they needed to hear, but they didn't always listen very well. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, and we'll perhaps finish it like this. Amos directly described these people of Israel as a basket of summer fruit. Amos 8, verses 1 and following. And maybe at that point you think, that sounds wonderful. A nice basket of summer fruit, maybe apples, melons, or something like that. That wasn't the message God intended. There's one other thing about a basket of summer fruit. If you leave it sitting out that sun very long, what happens to it? It quickly proceeds to rot, and it stinks. It smells bad. That's like my people Israel. You smell bad, God told them, in the spiritual sense. They were such that during this time of prosperity, they looked upon themselves and directed their attention where it needed to be. They thought too much about their own ways rather than serving Him. And because of that, they had lost the focus of what was most important. As you can well tell, it impacted their worship. It impacted the way in which they dealt with each other. They were rather selfish. They were inhumane. You see, those kind of materialistic matters troubled the people of, of the day of Amos. And of course, it very much can trouble you and me today. You and I will focus primarily on the matter of worship. As we ask, so during this time of prosperity and peace, they had lost sight of what worship was all about. And it brings us back to verses 21 to 24 of Amos chapter 5. God says, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. But let judgment run down as waters, and righteousness as a mighty stream. God had a great number of things to say to ancient Israel. Lessons that you and I are now going to develop in the following way. Let's try to extract four lessons from this passage. And the first one is an immediate lesson that many in our world would find shocking. But it's what God says. Lesson number one is this one. There are some assemblies that are intended to honor God, which quite frankly God despises. Let me say that again. There are some assemblies of individuals which are intended, at least in their mind, to honor God, which God hates it. Whatever they're doing and the way in which they're doing it does not please God. 
think of it this way. Ancient Israel was a group of people who, of course, had been given some instruction. They had been given the law of God centuries earlier. And yet, by the time we arrive at the book of Amos, verse 21 begins by saying, I hate your feast days. God said that. That wasn't Amos talking. God, through Amos, said, I hate your assemblies. Isn't it a shocking thing to imagine individuals assembling and gathering and coming together in what they suppose to be a way to honor God, and yet God hates what they're doing? Let's develop it like this. Previously in the Old Testament, God had spoken much about those feast days, the ones mentioned here in verse 21. And you and I remember, we can even list many of them. There was the Passover followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a seven-day festival in the first month of the Jewish year. And during that time, they, of course, were supposed to particularly honor the God of heaven by every day offering particular offerings to Him. Leviticus 23 details it. But later in the year, there was the Pentecost feast. And later in the year following that, there was the Feast of Tabernacles. You see, God had detailed these feasts were to take place. And it was to be particular times of offering homage and direction and worship to God. And yet, despite that, God says, I hate what you're doing. God didn't find any pleasure in their assemblies. There are two words that occur in verse 21, those verbs. The first one is hate. The second is despise. You'll notice on this particular slide, here is a particular reference in the very Word of God itself of a particular time wherein God specifically detailed and said that He found no pleasure in the meeting of some people. Their assembly is something God hated. My suspicion is there are many perhaps in our world that again would be shocked by this. After all, if I've taken the time to get up, to get ready, to make my way to this building, shouldn't God at the least be thankful I'm there? Shouldn't He at least be mindful of the sacrifice I've had to make to come? Shouldn't He at least appreciate the fact that I have assembled? God's answer to that is no. Just because you come, just because they assembled, God didn't like it. Now you and I can begin to ask questions. Why did God hate it? Why did He despise it? And we'll develop some more of them as we proceed today. But let's close this slide by noting, this of course is a premise. It's a principle that was not only viable and useful for that day of the long ago, but as you and I find in the Word of God, it's still exceedingly useful today. Is it still possible today to come together, to assemble, to gather in what supposedly is the name of God, and yet God to hate what we're doing, for Him to find no pleasure in the assembly of these individuals? The answer is absolutely yes, that could happen. In fact, as you and I come to Romans 9 verse 20 in the New Testament, we find that there was a description of a group of individuals, and it's a beautiful description at least in the following presentation. You can imagine as a potter takes a chunk of clay and molds it into a, a, a particular matter that he wants. Maybe a plate, a vase, some other kind of issue. There, God is likened to the potter. You and I are likened to the clay. 
And we are admonished that we ought to be a pliable matter in the hand of the potter so he can make of us what he wishes us to be. If an individual chooses to be rather unpliable, if an individual chooses to in fact be rather stubborn and resistant to the commands of God, that person is going to be in a very, very difficult position in the following sense, just like Israel. We'll see that in just a moment. But let's be more specific. God is a spirit, John 4, 24. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And therefore, the Lord Himself asserted that any organization, any group of people that come together, and although they may wish for worship to take place, if it is not done in spirit and if it is not done in truth, it will not be accepted. The Lord, in fact, that little word must, notice, that is an absolute requirement. The word must leaves no option. The idea under discussion must be included and it must be incorporated precisely that way. You'll notice some verses at the bottom. The New Testament has outlined, of course, the worship of the New Testament era. And you and I thrill at the thought of what God has revealed. But you'll notice this. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse number 15, we begin to appreciate this. May I suggest the following? So, as you think about ancient Israel, God has already told them, I hate your assemblies. I despise them. Could it well be that over the course of time, some in Israel had just fallen into the habit? Well, the Passover season's here. It's time to go offer the offerings. The tabernacle season is here. It's time to go do this. But yet their heart wasn't in it. They checked it off, if you please. It's just something I have got to do, as if there's no deeper meaning to it. Well, may I say, if your worship or mine today is described like that, it's not going to be accepted either. What about the songs we sang a moment ago? Do all in the name of the Lord. Did we mean that as we sang it? It's a beautiful song. The sentiment of it's potent, it's powerful. The song following that, praise our God. Did we mean that? My point is, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, I will sing with the Spirit, I will sing with the understanding. Did you and I sing with the understanding? Or have we allowed singing to just be a habitual part of worship to take up part of an hour? Singing's commanded. We must participate. You'll notice the New Testament describes it like this. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, Ephesians 5.19. The sister passage of Colossians 3.16 reads it like this. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. It isn't enough to be a spectator to let other people do the singing. I've got to sing, and you need to sing too. Did you and I do that today? May we never allow our worship to degenerate to a habit, a ritual that takes place every Sunday morning, Sunday night and Wednesday night. It must be more than that. As you'll notice as we close that slide, our first lesson has been dramatic. 
Here were people assembling, but God hated what they were doing. He didn't like the worship at all that they were offering. And what a great lesson there is in that for you and me today. What about the second lesson? Not only is this the case, did you notice that verse number 22 made this dramatic statement? Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. The nerve of God. Here are individuals who took the bullock out of their particular herd, who took a lamb out of their flock, sacrificed it. In fact, give a, gave thought to the matter of what loss was involved in it. Here I am taking a perfectly good bullock or lamb. I'm going to offer it to God, and He has the nerve not to accept it. I would ask all of us to think with great care. God does not merely accept everything offered to Him. Men have so often tried. And this is perhaps one of the most dramatic verses highlighting He just doesn't accept everything offered to Him. And so on this slide, you might appreciate that we ought to develop this a little more carefully and think about applying it to your life and to mine today. Can't you and I make this statement? Our God, He truly is great and He knows what He wants. And He has the exclusive right to dictate what He will accept. Isn't that so? Now that idea is not really so far-fetched. I might say that we're rather accustomed to it in other realms of life. Think about a teacher. In her or his classroom, that teacher has the exclusive right to dictate what constitutes an acceptable homework assignment. Here's one student that turns in a homework assignment. Here's another student that turns in one. This one gets a hundred. This one gets a zero. They both turned in something. What's the difference? This one did not do it the way the teacher demanded that it be done. Is God any less difficult to understand? God has highlighted, has He not, what is involved in service to Him, including His worship. And it is not our prerogative to change it. It's not our prerogative to add to it. And it's certainly not our prerogative to try to assert to Him what He will accept. He's already said what He'll accept. Here, the people of Israel, they offered Him some things, but He said, I'm not going to accept it. You and I ought to think very carefully about that, and let's develop it like this. This is by no means the only time in the Bible when God had something to say about this. What about Cain and Abel? Almost at the, at the very beginning, here were the two sons at that time at least of Adam and Eve. The time came in Genesis chapter 4 when they brought of their things and offered it to God. And God had respect to what Abel offered, the text says, but He did not have respect to what Cain offered. Oh, the nerve of God. Why didn't He like what Cain offered? The text goes on to tell us, Abel, of course, brought of the flock. Cain brought of the garden things of that which he had. Aren't you and I taught this? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. In Hebrews 11, verses 6 and 7, detail for us the characteristic features that God had respect to that which Abel offered, but not Cain. There's another example then. Cain didn't offer 
what and the number of the things that God had requested. Let's try another one. In Isaiah 1, verses 10 and following, Here again the children of Israel were under description, and they had gathered and they were offering unto God the things that they wished to offer Him. But God says, I hate it. I won't accept it. In fact, in sternness on that occasion, God said to them, you'd be better off not even assembling if this is what you're going to do. Can you imagine individuals assembling in their thinking to serve God, and yet God is so displeased with that which they're doing that He, in fact, it'd be better off for them if they didn't even meet. Now, you and I know that that's a tragedy. And you and I would never surely want to fall into a category like that. Let's look at one more in Malachi 1, verses 6 and following. On this occasion, the people again, they were assembling and they were gathering and they were offering to God the things that they wanted. But God one more time told them, Your heart, the things you're offering, I'm not pleased with this. And therefore, therefore, that weariness is such that you'd be better off not to even offer it. Now you and I know that that kind of description is a startling one. But you and I need to remember, God is great and we are not. He is perfect and we are not. He is infinite and we are not. He is omnipotent and we are not. He knows what He wants. We have no right to try to tell Him that He's going to accept this. Rather, you and I should lovingly submit to what He has already said and thrill at the thought of offering Him what He has said that He wants. Is, is it any wonder, as you and I come to the bottom of that slide, we learn a powerful lesson here. Any perversion of worship is evil. Now please be apprised of the fact, I don't use that word lightly. You and I often use the word evil to talk about murder and various and sundry other crimes against humanity. And sure, it's a fair word to use, but are you aware of the fact the Bible uses the word evil to characterize unscriptural worship which God doesn't like. That means individuals like you or I who would gather, who supposedly would enter into what we would call worship, and yet if it's not pleasing to God, it's evil. May we never be guilty of evil in this regard. Lessons 1 and 2 have then surrounded this. It's possible to assemble and yet be displeasing to God. It's also possible to offer to God and Him still not accept it. What about lesson 3? What else do we learn here? As you transition with me to the next one, you'll notice one of the things that was characteristic of the offering of the people on that occasion is listed in verse 23. Let's cast a spotlight on it and learn something dramatic. Verse 23, God says, Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs. They were singing to God in the attribute of their worship. For I will not hear the melody of thy vials. What is a vial? V-I-O-L. That's something like a violin. It's something like an instrument, and the children of Israel were playing mechanical instruments as a part of their service and offering to God. And in verse 23, God says, I won't hear it. We learn a dramatic lesson here, my friend. Worship is such a dramatic and beautiful thing. It is an opportunity for you and me 
to direct acts of reverence to God. That's the, really the definition of the word worship, acts of reverence directed to God. One of the things that the ancient people of Israel were doing that God was not pleased with is they were using mechanical instruments in their worship. Let's develop that in the following way. Now, there's no question. The usage of these had developed and come into Israel. Psalm 150, for example, is an example. But the point is, we note this, who introduced these things? It wasn't God. In fact, in 1 Chronicles 23, 5, David says, I did it. David did it. Here was a man who chose by his own selection to introduce these into Israel, and it exploded. Many began to utilize and do it. But might we ask this, God here says this, I'm not accepting it. As you and I come to the bottom of that slide, perhaps it's time to ask the following. Now you and I know we don't serve beneath the Old Testament law any longer. That law was nailed to the cross. You and I don't go to Jerusalem three times a year. We, we don't offer sacrifices that way. But yet under this New Testament era, we still excite at the thought of pleasing God and worshiping Him. How do we do it? Music is a part of worship. But what kind of music is it? It's those verses that you and I noted a moment ago. Let's ap appreciate the Colossians one again. Colossians 3.16 again says this, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. May I suggest the music then that is a part of New Testament worship is music that is capable of teaching. It's music that is capable of admonishing. There isn't a mechanical instrument on earth capable of either one of them. An instrument is something you play. It's something that in fact makes a sound, but it doesn't admonish, it doesn't teach anything. The kind of music that God wishes in His worship is music that He proceeds to say that is not only capable of teaching and admonishing, but then He defines it like this. Singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Singing's what He wants. That's what He said. Singing is what He desires. It's what He'll have. And so you and I, that's why we do this. Some have asked the question, why do we not have a band? Why do we have a guitar, a drum? Why do we have a harpsichord or a piano? I suggest you and I should be careful. Sometimes we might be tempted to say, well, it's our tradition not to have it. That's not it. It's not an issue of tradition. It's an issue of Bible authority. God has said He doesn't want that, and therefore we will not offer it to Him. He has said that He wants singing. And not only that, did you notice the Ephesians passage? He said, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That description is of unaccompanied, a cappella, congregational singing. And so that's what we do. Never a mechanical instrument is going to be used. But furthermore, those other adjectives, it's congregational. That is, we sing to one another. We encourage and admonish and exhort one another. And haven't the messages of those songs in many cases been truly fantastic? 
They're so encouraging in so many ways. That's what we do. It's not a matter of tradition or custom or anything else. And it's not because we don't like it. Mechanical instruments often sound very pretty. But it doesn't matter what I like. It doesn't matter what you like either. It matters what God likes. Ancient Israel tried to offer Him things, but He said, I'm not accepting it. And you and I would never dare offer Him a mechanical instrument in terms of a worship service. As you and I proceed on that slide, in Hebrews 2 verse number 12, the inspired writer there, chooses to describe a feature, an attribute of worship, and he describes, I will sing in the midst of the church. Notice he didn't say play. I'll sing in the midst of the church, and oh, how wonderful. You and I excited the thought of offering unaccompanied, a cappella congregational singing to God. I hope that we never take the singing service for granted, but you might notice as we close it, there's a powerful principle here. In 2 John verse number 9, the apostle John made this statement, Whosoever transgresseth and goeth onward abideth not in the doctrine of God. Now that phrase, to go onward, means you proceed beyond what God has revealed. Now you and I have already stated God has said what He wants. So what if I have the nerve to add a, a piano, a drum, a banjo, or anything else? Notice I've added something. Well, John just now said, if I go beyond what God has revealed, I don't have Christ, and I'm not saved. Well, surely we appreciate that principle in other arenas of worship. Sitting before every one of us is the Lord's Supper table. There are two emblems on it, and only two. There's the unleavened bread and there's the fruit of the vine. Now, in this instance, we so powerfully rest upon the revelation of God in relation to them. Suppose we add something to it. What if we have unleavened bread, fruit of the vine, and milk together with Oreos? Many would like it. No doubt it tastes good, but that's not the point. The point is God said these, and I can't add anything more. God said singing, and I can't add anything more. I can't play any mechanical musical instruments. That wouldn't be pleasing to God in worship. Those kind of principles lead us to close our lesson with point number four. Let's look at the fourth point and notice one more thing about these ancient Israelites and why God didn't accept their worship. You'll notice in verses 21 to 24, the text we read a moment ago, God's already said, I hate your assemblies. And though you offer peace offerings and burnt offerings and meat offerings, I'm not going to accept them. But verse number 24 closes that little passage with these words. But let judgment run down as waters, and righteousness as a mighty stream. There's one more thing about the Israelites that made God not accept their worship. And it had to do with this point. It was their life. It was their life. They weren't living in a way directed to God. They'd live however they wanted to live during the particulars of the week. And then when Saturday came and it's time to come together, oh, it's time to go offer. But their life was not one characterized by godliness and righteousness. They lived however they wanted to live. 
thinking they could just come together to the worship and offer to God these things he requested, and somehow everything was fine. But that isn't so. It's never been that way. In fact, let's develop it like this. In Amos 5.12, God says, Your transgressions are manifold. God told them that. So here you are coming together and, Oh, you come and offer you things, all right. But you're looking to get it over with as fast as possible so you can go back to doing all these other sinful things you want to be doing. God says, I'm not going to accept this kind of worship in that your life needs to be a proper and dedicated, respectful matter to me. That's what worship is. That's what it's always been intended by God to be. And isn't it so that that kind of error can still be a very troubling thing today? It's entirely possible a man or a woman who is a Christian, they've been baptized, but they sl slip into a life of sin and nobody else knows it. And so they go about their business all week sinfully doing the things they do, but they gather on Sunday morning and they sing and they pray and they listen to a sermon, but then they go right back Monday to what they were doing again. Well, notice that's nothing different than what their lives was. God expects and demands better from us than that. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6 verse 1. Paul said, God forbid. We can't live a life like that and expect God to suddenly find delight in our worship. It is to that I would add those verses at the bottom. May I say, that's nothing but hypocrisy. For a person to come and think that he or she will worship but then live all week long the other way, that's nothing but a hypocrite. Don't all of us basically hate hypocrisy? We don't like it when other people do it to us. How upset do you get when someone tells you something to your face and then the next day you learn that he really never meant it? He was just telling you that to get you out of his hair so he could go on doing what he wanted to do. We despise it when people treat us that way. How do you think God feels? Here's a person, oh, he or she has come on Sunday all right, and maybe even on Sunday night. But boy, you sure wouldn't ever know where their heart is on Tuesday or Thursday or Friday, and then they show up again next Sunday. That's an insult to God. We shouldn't expect God to take our worship, if that's true. He wants hearts that are repentant, hearts that are devoted, hearts that are obedient and submissive, hearts that thrill at the thought of doing His will because we love Him so much we want to do His will. We don't want to do what we want to do because Jeremiah 10, 23 says that you and I can't direct our own paths. I know the way of man is not in himself. And so let's close that slide with these verses. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus strongly denounced the Pharisees for being hypocrites. They said one thing and did something else. Jesus said, you're like a whited sepulcher, you know, just like a nice, pretty, shiny casket. Looks pretty on the outside, but on the inside it's full of dead men's bones. May you and I never be like that. May we excite at the thought of learning from these four lessons today and concluding our lesson like this. Unaccepted offerings. We've learned, among other things, there are offerings that God will not accept. There are assemblies that He hates. 
One particular we learn, no mechanical instrument to be a part of worship. And finally, our life should be an open matter of truthfulness. Didn't Paul say, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Does that characterize you and me? Are you living soberly, righteously, and godly? If you're, doing, if you're not, and if you're not doing it deliberately, God won't accept your worship. He won't. Don't you want to bring your life into a circumstance in which God will thrill at the thought of your worship? Your worship will be in truth and in spirit, and it will be a great glorification to Him. If today there would be anyone in the audience, maybe you've never become a Christian. Maybe to this point in life, though you know Jesus died on the cross, you've never submitted your life to Him. Please know that Jesus loves you. Please notice that God wants you to be with Him in heaven forever. But you've got to obey His will. And that requires you believe Jesus with all of your heart to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. That is to say, turn aside from them with the intent to do them no more. Then confess the name of Christ as the Son of God and be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. At that point, all those sins, whatever they were, are taken away. May I say, though, that once you rise from that watery grave, live faithfully till death, Revelation 2.10, always striving to serve and worship God as He has commanded. If today we could pray on your behalf for rededication, as a wayward child of God, we'd be happy to do that too. If there's anyone in the audience of whom we can be of help in either of these ways, we would wish you let us know. And do it at once so that we can assist you while together we stand and while we sing.